What I'm about to mention may seem a little strange, but I think we need these things nonetheless. One of the things I've noticed we are missing is a long cane near the pulpit, either to the left or to the right of me. We also need someone to man that cane anytime someone is preaching. Another concern I have is the conditioning of the arms of our deacons. I recommend that from this day forward, we place a bullpen, a bullpen in the education building to make sure they have the ability to throw a fastball. The last thing I've come to recognize is that we are missing is a basket of tomatoes by each double door. Now, I know you might be thinking to yourself, why do we need these things? Here is the reason why. If I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, the person manning that cane should yank me from this pulpit. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, a minister should signal for a warming up in the bullpen, and our deacons should see my forehead as a target and hit me right between the eyes. Obviously, I'm saying these things in jest, but that is how seriously we need to take the gospel message. There are three points I want to glean from this text this morning. Point number one, the responsibility of the pastor or minister to the gospel. Point number two, the responsibility of the congregation to the gospel. Point number three, we are together for the gospel. Point number one, the responsibility of the pastor to the gospel. I know that we don't want to elevate the pastoral office more than we should. Whatever we are doing in this life, as far as our vocations are concerned, whether your vocation is esteemed highly or lowly by the world, it ought to be done for the glory of God. But I am persuaded that there is something special about the pastoral office, office which God reveals in his word. It is, in a sense, a higher calling with respect to the church. No pressure, Pastor Jones. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 1 through 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Another passage in Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless faithful to his wife, a man, who, who, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. 
Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Hold in mind, none of these things should be expected to be done with perfection, but we ought to think of these things in general terms with discernment and wisdom. With that being said, let us not look to our pastors or ministers or even Bible characters for that matter as superheroes or extraordinary human beings or somehow better than the lay people in the congregation. Pastors and Bible figures have feet of clay just like everyone else. One of the repercussions of thinking in this vein is if we are not careful is we end up tying our faith to the pastor and not to Jesus Christ. So when a minister of the gospel has a moral failing, we suddenly find ourselves rejecting the church or even Christ himself. I think part of the reason why this happens is that we tend to hold our pastors and ministers more accountable to their behavior than we do the proclamation of the gospel. I know that a pastor should be a man of upstanding character, but that really shouldn't be our starting place. The question we should start with is this. Does your pastor, Sunday after Sunday, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of its constituent parts? I am not giving license for immoral behavior. Nonetheless, that is really where we should start. If you hear anything less than that, it should cause our deacons to grab for a tomato. Now, when it comes to the gospel message, there are pastors who start out with a distorted gospel and sadly never learn any better. However, even if it is the case that a minister is preaching the gospel rightly for many years, it takes less than you might think for a pastor to start to distort the gospel over time. Let's say a pastor is faithfully preaching the gospel at his church. Everything is going all fine, the church is healthy, and people are delighting in the gospel. Then one day, out of nowhere, he is struggling with a wayward flock. He notices numbers declining, more criticism, elders and deacons with dissension. Ask yourself, what might the old Adam start to think to himself when faced with this situation? Maybe he thinks to himself, I must be doing something wrong. Why would he think that? Because one of our biggest problems when things aren't going smoothly is forgetfulness. Maybe he has forgotten he is an under-shepherd and not the chief shepherd of the flock. So he thinks to himself, if I'm doing everything right, why is all of this happening? He has forgotten that God is sovereign over the affairs and actions of men and whatever those actions may be, God is working them for the good of his people. Amen. This kind of thinking is quite common in the church, and I think it happens naturally outside of the church in our other vocations as well. How many times do parents think that they are doing everything wrong when their children are in a season of rebellion? You know what? Even if you did do everything wrong, Jesus does all things well. Amen. So you don't have to. Amen. I digress. What else?
can forgetfulness cause to happen? Maybe a minister loses sight of the fact or forgets the fact that the gospel can cause division. In the context of the universal church, there are divisions that happen on convictions with regard to secondary issues, such as baptism, perspectives on the Lord's Supper, etc. This is how we end up with denominations. You have Baptists, you have Presbyterians, and as I have heard some put it, the non-denominational denomination. Even though we, as a local fellowship, might find agreement on even some of those secondary issues, there is still division to be found in local congregations as well. This is not to say there should be division for division's sake. Moreover, just because you have division doesn't necessarily mean you're preaching the gospel either. It could just be that you're a jerk. Ministers must understand that the preaching of the gospel will always produce mixed responses, just as it did in Jesus' day. Some people loved him, some people hated him, and some people were indifferent. Here is the key thing. His message never changed. In Matthew 16, uh, we see a few verses that somewhat exemplify what I'm, what I'm saying with, as far as perspectives on who Jesus is. Verse 13, beginning of verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. R.C. Sproul has a lecture series called The Hard Sayings of Jesus, where he goes through some of the passages that are hard for people to stomach. I think that was a wonderful thing for him to do because there are things that Christ has said that if we are honest with ourselves, we don't want to hear. Maybe some pious person in our congregation is thinking to himself right now, that doesn't apply to me. All of God's truths are yes and amen. To that I say yes, absolutely. However, lest you forget you're a sinner, I want you to do a thought experiment with me. If I read to you Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, and so on and so forth. Now, what does someone preaching tend to hear when this passage is read? Hallelujah. Glory to God. You are worthy. Amen. Right? On the flip side, what normally happens when one reads a passage like we find in Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. By the way, this is describing you outside of Christ. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside 
Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Let's just say that the amens tend to decrease with passages like this. Here is my point. We we naturally gravitate towards what is pleasing to our ears and want to distance ourselves from things that are difficult, even if they are both true. Naturally, that is the case for ministers as well. Ministers of the gospel are not stones. They want to hear people tell them that they were blessed by their sermon in some way. It's nice to hear an amen or two when you're preaching or at least get a head nod. It's wonderful to know that the congregation is praying for you. But we must never, ever let the absence of those pleasant things discourage us from preaching the whole counsel of God. The combination of the things I've mentioned, the division, the burdens, etc., can cause ministers to become more vulnerable and susceptible to another gospel. All it takes is for someone to see these things happening and say, hey, pastor, I see what the problem is. You aren't naming it and claiming it. Pastor, let me ask you a question. What sin did you commit to cause this to happen? Hey, pastor, is your church woke? Maybe six months prior, these types of ideas and questions would never enter his consideration. But at a point of weakness, often without realizing it, these things enter his mind like a cancer. You don't see the changes happening overnight, but over time, his sermons start to sound like TED Talks. His preaching is more influenced by the latest trends of evangelicalism than they are by the Sermon on the Mount. And as the downward spiral continues, he leaves the ministry to find his chi in a mountain somewhere. I've seen this happening and heard of this happening over and over and over again. And the cause is almost always the same. A departure from the authority of scripture and the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. I love how Paul holds himself accountable in this passage. And he is very candid. He doesn't just say, hey, if you notice Brother Bobby over there preaching another gospel, or if you notice someone preaching another gospel when you're on vacation, he says, if I or an angel from heaven preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. He recognizes recognizes that in this life, sin is still present and that he is susceptible to it just like anyone else. This disposition is key to being on guard for the gospel. I find it scary when people say, I would never do whatever sin you want to fill in the blank with. If we think that way, we are often most susceptible to the sin that we would supposedly never commit. I love when Minister Wright says that Satan is on a tight leash. That is a great and accurate description. But here is our problem. We like to walk up to him anyway and stick our hands in his mouth to see if he'll bite. (laughs) Point number two, the responsibility of the congregation for the gospel. While our pastors, preachers, and elders should be held accountable, I think we often fail, what we often fail to do as a congregation is see our own accountability. Again, 
a minister of the gospel must be on God for the gospel, and he must hold fast to the gospel message. But the congregation must at the same time pay attention to what they hear. You are not left off the hook as hearers. When Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, it is assumed implicitly that the churches in Galatia should have the ability to discern if another gospel is being preached. Here is our problem, though. There are things that cause a minister to distort the gospel, but there are also things that cause the congregation not to want to hear it or not to confront it when we notice it not being preached. There was a podcast I used to listen to a few years back that I really enjoyed. It was theological in nature, and I just really liked the content. Um, For a reason unbeknownst to me, one of the founders um, ended up leaving the the podcast, and a new co-host was brought in. At first, everything was on the up and up, and there were no issues. What started to happen is um, I just started to notice some changes um, happening. Um, Some of you may be familiar with a group called CNC Music Factory from way back when, right? They had a song titled, Things That Make You Go, Hmm. That is what happened when I was listening, as, as I continued listening to the podcast. After a while, I started to hear things that made me go, hmm. It kept happening more and more and more. And it became clear to me that they were conflating the gospel with other issues, and I eventually stopped listening to the podcast. As a congregation, we must pay attention to the things that make us go, hmm. We must ask questions. We must watch for unhealthy patterns. And more importantly, we must be in the word and in prayer. Do you know why that is? If we are not in the word, trust me when I tell you, nothing will make you go, hmm. As the Bible says, we'll be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. The word is what gives us the discernment we need to separate truth from error and to catch the subtleties of distortions when we hear them. A false teacher is not going to start his sermon out by announcing he is a false teacher. He will be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Don't hear me saying that you now have license to nitpick every sermon or treat, your pa- treat the preacher like he is auditioning for American Idol. What I am calling you to is alertness. Alertness for yourself and for the sake of your brothers and sisters around you. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, um, this, the context is referencing the day of the Lord, but I think it applies to what I'm, what I'm getting at with the alertness. Therefore, beloved, since you were waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care 
that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Like ministers, congregants can run into situations where they have grown weary in this life, and the gospel momentarily appears to be insufficient for their felt needs. So what can happen is we begin looking inward instead of upward for our comfort. We start to look for love in all the wrong places because we've lost sight of what the gospel is really about. Point number three together for the gospel. Here is the big picture. We are in this war together and must hold fast to the gospel together. My job is not to scratch your itching ears and your job is not to come to church looking to have your ears scratched with popcorn in hand. In one sense, I am accountable to you for the gospel and in another sense, you are accountable to me for the gospel. You may have observed my use of the word war. I'm not using this type of language just to dramatize what I'm saying. I'm using it because as Christians, we really are in spiritual warfare. This is what some have called the church militant. Thanks be to God that he has given us weapons for our warfare. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. This passage really highlights what I'm saying as far as our roles um, being different, but on the same side. Starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, which, you have, which, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So Paul is telling us in Ephesians that our weapons are not guns, our weapons are not knives because our war is spiritual. As Christians, we also have the waters of baptism. We have Christ's blood, body, as presented in the bread. His blood as represented in the wine. Beloved, we are well equipped for this spiritual war. Paul also says something in the following verses in Ephesians that apply to the congregation starting in verse 19, making supplications for all saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in change that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
Notice how the roles are different and yet symbiotic in nature. Paul gives an exhortation to the church and speaks of his neediness at the same time. Pastors need encouragement. They need to be edified and they need fellowship just like you do. We ought to pray for them. They ought to pray for us. And as our under shepherd, they bring our knees before the Father since God has given them the stewardship of, our soul, of the souls of his people. Again, we are together for the gospel and for no other purpose. I know it can be hard to set aside how you feel about maybe church music. I know it can be a struggle to know that a brother or sister understands some theological point differently than you, but let us never confuse those things as being on the same level as the gospel. I think the title we have as brothers and sisters in Christ is very appropriate in the context of what I'm saying. God is our father and we are his children. In a natural family, no matter how much you can't stand your brother or sister at times, no matter how much they may have hurt you, the title doesn't go away and the requirements are still the same. I think it is helpful for us to remember this designation as spiritual brothers and sisters. As I stand here, I'm almost certain that someone listening to me right now can't stand me. And I don't blame you. I can't stand myself sometimes. But you know what? I'm still your brother in Christ, whether you like it or not. Just like you don't get to choose your natural siblings, you don't get to choose your spiritual ones either. In a sense, we have to fight like brothers and sisters if we are going to avoid the type of situation found in the Galatian churches. What I mean by that is speaking the truth in love to one another. When you see your brother or sister in a fault, confront them in a spirit of humility. I often say that parenting is hard enough when we're doing it the right way. There is no need to add unnecessary complications to make it difficult. The same goes for the church. We have enough to deal with when we get the gospel right. Let us not add additional burdens that the church was not meant to bear. To give an example, what we sometimes do is try to nuance the gospel. So we have Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the wealthy, or the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the poor, and I can give a thousand other examples. We take our felt needs, our life experiences, and our sufferings, and we make them normative for who we worship with or who we fellowship with. We set aside the gospel of Jesus Christ for the sake of our personal experiences, forgetting that all of our personal experiences fall under the umbrella of the gospel. These kinds of things take our eyes off the prize and can put spiritual chinks in our armor, if you will. We forget about the bigger picture of the war and we focus too much of our attention on one battle while the enemy creeps in unawares. Remember that on one side we have the true gospel and on the other side we have more false gospels than you can count. I know it may seem like we are outnumbered at times, but as I've heard someone say, one in Christ is a majority. Beloved, don't forget that we are fighting a battle that we have already been victorious. It is critical that we understand the concept of the already and the not yet when it comes to the gospel. 
We are victorious because in Christ, Satan and his squad have been conquered. Our greatest enemy has been defeated. The enemy is prowling around, seeking whom he may devour now, our family, our relatives, our friends, but rest assured that his time is coming. Turn with me to the book of Revelation 19, chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Skip down a little bit to verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophets, who, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and, whose worship, and who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." I mentioned previously preaching the gospel in all of its constituent parts. This is one of those constituent parts. In his first advent, he came as the suffering servant. He suffered, died, and was buried. His own creation spat in his face. Those whom he came to save still continue in sin. But don't get it twisted. In his first In his first advent, he came as a lamb for the slaughter, but he will return as the lion of Judah. The cup of wrath will be full. There will be no more mercy. There will be no more grace. There will only be judgment for anyone who stands outside of Christ. That is bad news. But Christian, do you believe this? This is part and parcel of the gospel message. If you don't understand the bad news, the good news will not be so appealing. Here is the good news. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, lived for our righteousness, dies for our sins, and was raised for our justification. There are more elaborate ways of explaining the gospel, but that is it in a nutshell. Every sermon preached, every song we sing, Every prayer we pray, every good work flows out of that simple gospel message. As strange as it sounds, that is one of the things that makes the true gospel so difficult for us. It's too simple. It's too easy. You mean to tell me I don't have to do anything? Lord, I know. The sins, those are terrible to bring to you. 
but at least let me give you my accomplishments. Beloved, all you have to do to distort the gospel is add one drop of your own righteousness. I've heard many fanciful descriptions that seek to illustrate what the gospel is. Maybe you've heard some of them. You take one step, God takes two. How about this one? God is responsible for 99% of your salvation. All you have to contribute is 1%. This one is my favorite. Salvation is like someone who can't swim. They're drowning in the ocean. God throws them a life vest. And all they have to do is reach out and grab it. Let's take a look at what scripture has to say about these ideas. Look with me to, in Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. And you were struggling. No, no, that's not what it says. And you were weak. No, that's not quite it. Ah, here's what it says. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh, of the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Colossians chapter 2 says something very similar. When you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your heart, of your flesh, contrast, he made you alive with him. Now, I've been to many funerals, many grave sites, many cemeteries. I've never tried this before, but I'm fairly certain if I threw a life vest to any of the dead people there, none of them would reach out and grab it. This is an aspect of the gospel that we tend to, to wince at. The fact that we are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. It is much more palpable for us to see ourselves as struggling or weak, or maybe we're just ignorant and need more education. Here is the thing. If we are struggling, we can do something about that. If we are weak, we can do something about that. If we are dead, we can't do anything. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are no longer dead. Oh, sorry. As Christians, we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We have been made alive in Christ according to the gospel. Praise be to God. Here is another aspect of the true gospel. Jesus died for the sins of Christians too. That was a joke. <laughs> Nevertheless, if you find yourself wanting to offer something to God, here is what I suggest you offer. 
empty hands of faith. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, as a church, we need your help. We need your strength. We need your wisdom to hold fast to this gospel message you've left for us to proclaim. Unite our hearts to see the diamond of the gospel in all of its splendor. Help us to love one another and grow in maturity together so that we can spot a wolf in sheep's clothing from a mile away. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.